0: Welcome to the Get It Done Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Ryan. Today, we're interviewing Stephen A. Milner. Let's get it done. The Get It Done Podcast is sponsored by Team Get It Done. All right. So today, we are interviewing Stephen A. Milner. He is the immediate past president of the New York Mortgage Bankers Association. He is the CEO of U.S. Mortgage Corporation is he, and he's <clears throat> the only CEO, uh, mortgage CEO to be licensed in all fifty states as an MLO and DC.
1: Stephen, welcome to the Get It Done Podcast. Thank you, Jimmy. Great to be here. And I look forward. I've been looking forward to this podcast and sharing whatever you'd like me to share with your listeners.
0: For sure, brother. Well, we're gonna get right into it because you have a pretty incredible story and. I've interviewed a lot of you know different CEOs of companies, and what I what I've come to realize is that everyone has just the most unique story, just way to get to to where they're at. And right. we tried to record your podcast before; we had internet issues. Oh. I mean, like it's just I I respect your story way too much to have like in and outs on on audio. So we're just going to be thankful for some um, good internet. Very but good. Um, but look, is there anything that I missed um, in in my my brief edification? Yeah, I mean, here. MBA pre- president in New York, um, CEO of, a, of U.S. Mortgage Corporation, licensed in all 50 states. Any, anything that maybe I missed?
1: Uh, I'm on the board of directors of um, Suffolk County Commu- Community College, which is on Long Island. Um, I'm also on the Independent Mortgage Bankers Executive Council. I'm one of, I think, about 50 members. It's a great organization, which is a, an arm of the MBA um and um let me see, I'm very active with NAREP, National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals, which is a national organization with forty thousand members. And as you said, I'm licensed as an MLO. i'm I think I'm the only CEO that in the country that's licensed as a mortgage loan originator in, in every state, including Washington, DC. Let me see what else. Past president of New York NBA. You got that.
0: So. <laughs> I mean, just like check off the list. It's just, I mean, and yes, 100%. There is not one other CEO in America yeah. that's licensed in all 50 states for sure. Um, well, all right. Well, I want to get right into it. And uh, we use, uh, well, the Get Done podcast is all about overcoming adversity to achieve your dreams. And it's more so about the come up story. We use Elon Musk as an example. He has a great story from making a million dollars all the way to making a billion dollars. And that's a great story. But what we're really looking at is the zero to a million story, the come up story. And the best place to start that, Stephen, is where were you born? Uh, Who are your parents? What were they like? What were the first uh, few years of your life?
1: Okay, great. Uh, Just as a side note, also, uh, Jimmy, I'm also on the board of directors of the TMC, the Mortgage Collaborative, <clears throat> excuse me, which is a great organization, and I highly recommend it. Um, so it's,
0: you're on the board of so many things; it's hard to keep it all straight. I mean, like, 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 do you have you have to carry around your resume just to like? Uh, yeah.
1: know well, I only sleep three to four hours a day, so they say <laughs> it's not healthy, but I've been doing it my whole life, so.
0: <clears throat> I I can only imagine. Well, all right, start us out. Where where do we where, where do we begin your life?
1: All right, so. I like how I like the format, quite frankly, Jimmy, because uh, as I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when I sit with people for the first time, I always talk about where they have been where they, in their business and personal life, where they are now in their business and personal life, and where they are going in their business and personal life, no matter who I'm sitting with. And my goal is to focus in on where they are going so I can help them get to where they want to go. That's my focus as the founder and CEO of U.S. Mortgage. That's why I've been my entire life. And and the way and I start my story, I start that dialogue by telling my story first and this way I can listen to their story and it doesn't have to be rehearsed because it is what it is. Right. And I started off my story simply by saying the following that no one wakes up one day and they say they wanted to be a loan officer or a mortgage broker or a mortgage banker or in the mortgage business. And I know a lot of people in this business and no one I know again, as I said, woke up one day when they're in junior high or high school or after high school saying that their aspiration, their goal, their objective in life is to be in, is to be in the mortgage banking business. And my story is no different. My parents were from the Bronx. Um, now, sometimes when I tell my story, I have to sort of relate to the, way the geographic areas throughout the country because we're all over the country. <clears throat> and some people don't know where the Bronx is or <laughs> well, yeah. Long Island is. But Anyway, the Bronx is sure. the borough of New York. My, pa- my father was a carpenter. My mother was a civil service employee. And uh, they made very little money. Um, and as a carpenter, my father and mother decided, uh, after they got married, to move to Los Angeles, California, where I was born. And my mother and my father worked on Disneyland as a carpenter. And when I was seven years old, they put me back, in the backseat of a 1949 DeSoto. Most people don't even know what a DeSoto is, but it was, it was it was an old car that existed in the 40s and 50s. And to this day, I still remember sitting in the backseat saying to mommy and daddy, Mommy and Daddy, I don't understand. Daddy's been working at Disneyland, and we have never been to, and I have never been to Disneyland. Can you take me there? Needless to say, they went back to the Bronx. And to this day, I still have not been to Disneyland. It's it's really strange when you hear about stories when you remember stories as a child. Even I've been to Disneyland, Steve. I've and I'm, to and D- I'm
0: from Wisconsin. I mean, like you know, wow. I mean, really? Yeah.
1: Well, you I've got one on me, Steve. bud. I went to. Star I've been to Disney.
0: All of that. I mean, yeah, wow. I've been to
1: Disney World many, many times, but never <clears throat> Disneyland. So we went to back to the Bronx. They moved around to a couple of apartments here and there. And then they bought a house in Suffolk County in a community called Brentwood. Brentwood it was a Latino community then, and it is now. It's the largest, it was then and still is now, the largest Latino Hispanic community in New York State other than the boroughs of Manhattan, other uh, of New York, I should say. And there's five boroughs, there's Bronx, there's the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, uh, and uh, and Manhattan. Um I have to imagine
0: that affects your, your, I guess, direction later on in life with
1: uh, being being part of NARAP. Yeah. And it still is a very highly concentrated Latino, Hispanic community. And I grew up there, graduated, um, went to elementary school, junior high school, high school, graduated. I went to college on Long Island and I got a degree in civil engineering. I've always been, I've always admired bridges and tunnels and cranes, you know, when i travel around different cities i to this day i still admire looking at cranes and how they build and how they operate but anyway i started working in an engineering for, firm but that really didn't work out you know i re- i thought i'd have the passion for it but i did not and i've always had a passion for mentoring mentoring and education so i got a, i went to another college on long island and i got a degree in education um and, so
0: wait, uh, so wait, wait. So, okay. So you got, um, <clears throat> we're, we're flying by high school, but it's okay. I'm going to go back to it, but you have two degrees. So you have a, a degree in at civil engineering and in education.
1: I have a degree in engineering. I have a degree in primary education. I have a degree in secondary education, which is grade seven through 12. And I actually have a PhD in math, which I'll get to in a minute. Jeez.
0: But, I mean, okay. Okay. Oh, that's, okay that that's incredible in and of its own just that piece but going I want, I want to go back to, um, to to early years so like I here we brushed by elementary school and high school and that's cool but generally <clears throat> people have stories from when they're very young. A good friend of mine Renee Rodriguez I was actually I was just at his uh, event Amcon in Las Vegas and he talks about most everything that we do in our lives is to either heal our past or to honor our past. And it's kind of crazy, but when I start to think about it, I kind of could tear up on some things that are, are very important to me. And I know how important education is to you. Is that something that I think that... that I'm not 100% sure about it. I guess I'm asking the question. Is that that's something where you got, I guess, a high value for early on in life? Or is that something that you came up with later
1: on? Well, I don't know. I just instinctively I've always enjoyed just trying to help people um, no matter what they're doing. And my philosophy as even as the CEO or as a school teacher was simply the following philosophy. If the student has not learned, then the teacher has not taught. I'll repeat that. If the student has not learned, then the teacher has not taught. And very often as a teacher... Whether you're a parent teaching your children or, or a CEO teaching your, your, your managers or branch manager, as it, as it relates to mortgaging, <clears throat> very often will blame the student for not learning. My feeling is, has always been, even when I was a school teacher, that if my students didn't learn, then I did not teach. And that still is my philosophy today.
0: That's a great quote. Caption that. That's um that that's definitely a, a, a great quote. Because I think that it's almost like it's a pride thing with teachers or with, or with leaders or managers in mortgage companies for that for that matter. It's just like look, it, you expect people to read your mind sometimes. But um, yeah, mine, uh, Brian Covey says this is like look, you got to walk the floor, see what people are actually saying to their customers, help them, help them sell. Don't just correct. Don't just like bring down the iron fist after you figured out they did something wrong. Yeah. Help them, you know, pre- prevent it uh, type of a thing. Um, I want, I want to, we're going to move on from this, but I just, I want to just touch on high school for a second is that I always ask people this, what were their, what their first jobs were and what their first car was. I'm genuinely always interested in that because it's just a okay, weird. Good.
1: So my know? first job was cleaning toilets. And when I was 16 years old for a dollar, about 80 no about 80 cents an hour my first paycheck was 36 dollars uh
0: I you know, love it. I, 80 cents not even a dollar
1: no oh my goodness I, yeah and I was so proud of that job because I was making money again my parents didn't have any my parents were we had come came from very modest uh economic household you know and I didn't I got my first sweater when I was in ninth grade. You know, so I came really from very little. My parents had very little money. I'll never forget. It was a cardigan butt down, button-down sweater that they got at a department store called E.J. Corvettes, <laughs> which was on a popular store on Long Island. Um, but, uh, but if I can relay one, one one incident in my early life as. Um, Oh, you asked, I'm sorry, you asked me what was my uh, first job and what was what was the, oh, the car. The car, the first car was, a, I think in 1956, uh, it was a used car, a Rambler. I don't know if you ever heard of Ramblers, but it was a what, pretty. What is it? Uh, is that? It, it looks like, I don't know. It looks feel like. like
0: that's a Jeep. I feel like a Jeep makes it's like it a great little,
1: It looks like a Jeep, but it was like half the size, but it was exciting to have my own car.
0: <laughs> okay i love it so i i want to actually uh, you, you were going down a path with this and i actually kind of like the path so your first sweater was you know a cardigan in in ninth grade from aj yeah. corvettes and that was a big deal for you i mean yeah
1: i, I mean I we mean, didn't have any money you know and ninth grade you know first year of high school you know i got to look cool and fashionable and my parents got me a sweater i think it was like ten nine dollars but They couldn't afford it at the time, you know, and I. so I was excited. Again, it's interesting as a child, as an adult, how you remember things as a child. One thing that may not be related to the interview, though, to some degree, is the fact that one day I was playing a pickup game of basketball. I was 16 years old right in front front of my house. And um, at halftime, they all all my friends sat down on the curb. And they all take out a cigarette and they start smoking. And they said, hey, Milner, try this cigarette. And I said, I don't smoke. And they said, well, you should try it. Everybody smokes. So I took a puff on that cigarette when I was 16 years old. They were all sitting on the curb, if you can get a a visual image of this. And I almost choked. (laughs) And then I said to them, guys, I want to know from which orifice does the smoke leave your body. (laughs) Does it come out of your ears, your nose, your mouth, your backside, but I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, does it come out of your wee-wee, whatever it came out of? Yeah, yeah. And I said, and they all looked at me like I was crazy, and I said, you can't tell me that that smoke, all the smoke doesn't leave your body, that some of it stays in your body. They all thought I was nuts. They started throwing stones at me. That was the last puff I ever took on a cigarette, 56 years ago it was, yeah. Wow. And I That's- and I try to really impress good health to my employees, you know, because it's important, you know, and smoking, you know, is not good for you. So I always tell that story when I see people smoking. But I know it's not related to the interview, but it is something I remember as a child when I was 16 years old.
0: You know what? Um If you remember it, there's generally a story there, especially all these years later. And that's a great story because here you're, you're literally teaching them a lesson. (laughs) I mean, and then you become an educator and you're, (laughs) and, and, and I know, I know briefly a little bit about, um, about some MLM stuff that you got into with, uh, with more into health stuff that, and that's important to you. And I mean, I think a lot of people would have just smoked it and tried to have been cool and fit in. But here yeah. you are saying, nah, screw you guys and they're throwing rocks at you. I mean, yeah. like, that's like the truest story of any CEO <laughs> out there. Like, here, I'm just not gonna fit in, but you guys are you're you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know? And um and, and and of course they were. So okay, so you were you were cleaning toilets for 80 cents an hour. Yes, sir. I just I, I love that. Was that a job that you had all throughout high school, or was that something that you um
1: you, you no, down. interesting you bring that up. No, I I started working at some local stores in Brentwood, like a um, when I got my license, I was able to uh, work in some drug stores and deliver groceries. I mean, not groceries, Um, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals at that time you were able to do that and whatever people want. Whenever some customers wanted some deliveries, I would I would do that. Um, and that was, you know, and that's probably what I did, you know, and Uh, let me see what else. And that was, that was probably, you know, I was just trying to make a living as best I can, you know, trying to help my parents out. But, uh, and then I started, then I graduated high school and I started going to college. I took out student loans that I paid, it probably paid off, took me about 10 years to pay them off or whatever the case may be.
0: Well, with all the degrees, so, all right, let's go to college. So, all right, we get, we, we, we start out with a degree in civil engineering fascinated with, you know, building cranes, that type of stuff, bridges. Um, what did you, did you get a job in that field while you were in school? I guess what made you go that route? I I
1: graduated and I got a job as an apprentice engineer in a local, in a local engineering firm. Um, but i just realized that i may have liked admiring cranes and roads and bridges but i just didn't have the passion for it right so but for i've always enjoyed education and i enjoyed i enjoyed my experience in, in 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 school and i thought you know maybe a secure position one that i like and have a passion for would be teaching so i went to another college on long island and i got a degree in um and, uh, and teaching grades K through six, which which was a permit, a provisional certification to, change, to, to teach students from kindergarten through sixth grade, reading groups, changing diapers, the whole thing. And then I got uh, a permanent certification to teach math from grade seven through 12. And that included algebra, geometry, trigonometry, advanced calculus, all those courses and uh, i really enjoy that and uh i was also my goal was to become a principal and to do that on long island at the time you had to have a phd you had to have a doctorate or something so i was pursuing my master's degree going to school at night and then pursuing my doctorate degree which i eventually received but my goal was to become a principal because there was a much higher level of income as a principal at the time
0: So did you, while working as a teacher, did you, did you have any other jobs while you, while you were doing that? Is that when MLM started for you or was that later on?
1: MLM? Multi-level marketing, um, Amway. Oh, I didn't get to that yet. No. You want me to get to that? Well, I'm
0: just... I've only, I've I've heard like the internet go on and off so I've like heard that part of the story. So oh, all right, maybe, so let me I guess so maybe I'm so jumping ahead, but No, no, no. If I'll, I'll transition us to, to that because there, there's I, I I find it hard to believe you were just a teacher.
1: Yeah, so I was you know, I was you know, I was I was just teaching uh you know, from six to thir- you know, 6:30 to 2:30, you know, and uh very often in grade 7 and 8 was seven and eight and nine, the principal would assign me kids that were similar to the sweat hogs from Welcome Back, Cotter. Remember that show? I do not. Um, <laughs> no. I do not. No. Gabe Kaplan and John Travolta was in that, Horshack. A lot of your listeners probably are old enough <laughs> to know that. But um, that's what I look like. Gabe Kaplan had a big afro like out to here and a big mustache. And he was a school teacher. And uh, oh my, it was goodness. called Welcome Back, Cotter, you know, and and I, um who can get me a picture of that like i want to see i want a picture of that i have one in my de- office
0: okay, that's that yeah, we're definitely i'm definitely getting a picture of that. yeah that's pretty
1: cool When well, we promote and that's where podcast. john travolta got that's his heart he, sort of he got his start sort of in that show and then he went to saturday night live uh fever and all that but um yeah so i was going to school so i so i was i was just teaching you know just you know, I also played, I forgot to say, I also played semi-pro baseball in, in the high school. And um, I really, and I was, I was a pretty good center fielder, but that wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't going to make it to the minors, you know. And um, so I was really only teaching, making five, six, seven thousand dollars 7000 a year at the time, to be quite frank. And then uh, in 1972, uh 1973, I got married. And my wife then was a school teacher in the Bronx, and I was a teacher in Brentwood. Um, Actually, I left that one part. When I got when I started teaching, most most students that become teachers get a job in a school district different than the school district that they went to school in. I ultimately uh, taught in the same schools with the same teachers that were my teachers, which is kind of strange. That, definitely, yeah. That's kind of strange, right? So uh, so I was teaching, so I grew up in Brentwood, taught in Brentwood, and I was teaching there for many, many years. Anyway, uh, in 1973, I got married in 19, um, and my wife then was a teacher in the Bronx, and I was teaching in Brentwood. We had, a, we had an apartment in Bayside, Queens, and I was traveling back and forth. And then we decided to buy a house on eastern long island in a in a in a village called setorket which is like um if you know anything about the L- the long Island expressway it's probably three-quarters of the way out on long island we bought a house there in 1977 <clears throat> and i'm my son scott a who's currently the president of u.s mortgage which we'll get into in a minute um was born in 1978 so At that time my my wife and i were making about fifteen thousand dollars each so we decided that one of us should stay home so she stayed home we went from making thirty thousand dollars a year to fifteen thousand dollars a year and i've always felt a man has to do what a man has to do right so i decided to do anything i can do to to make up for the family income that we lost and that included um taking on jobs such as uh, with the school district uh, such as uh, intramural coach for basketball football baseball uh, student council advisor yearbook advisor I was also given jobs to to do home teaching uh, from house to house for those kids that were you know that had some issues if you will and they paid me a dollar 25 an hour. Just to be clear, that was 1.25 per hour, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I was doing, and then uh, as you pointed out before, and then I got involved in these MLM MLM companies, multi-level marketing companies, and the two companies I got involved in was Amway and Shackley. Amway is a company, I still think they're in business, that makes cleaning products, and Shackley. Uh, is a vitamin company out of Norman, Oklahoma. And the whole thing behind the MLM, the multi-level marketing concept, is that uh, the best customers are the salespeople. So in other words, that's the whole idea. So every closet in my house was filled with either cleaning products or vitamins. That's how the MLM concept works. Uh, And I, I never... Continued using the um, the cleaning products. But to this day, I still take, what am I up to, 48 vitamins every single day. Uh, so I've been doing that for like 40 years. I don't know. I mean, 48? 48? 48 vitamins, dude.
0: That's got to be overkill. Even for you, Stephen. 48? I know.
1: I take 25 in the morning with an English muffin. <laughs> and then 23 in the at around 6 o'clock what i mean list those like what like really i have a whole list if you want it i mean <laughs>
0: i i mean like my goodness i how could you even list it all out that's just like no, i do it's i got 48 vitamins well health is important to to what one puff of a cigarette is out of here and i'm having 48 I know
1: vitamins. i just <laughs> i never to <laughs> stop taking them you know and <laughs> i'm hoping it contributes to my to good health and longevity you know but who knows but you well, try to do the best you can well, absolutely.
0: Um, so, so all right, So you're you're your own best customer at Amway. Yeah, yeah. So, but I wasn't making
1: any money. Yeah, you, you, your best customer is yourself in the MLM MLM concept, and you don't make. You're not making any money, right? So I wasn't making any money. So then, in 1980, my life changed. I went to refinance my house. I sat down with the loan officer, and she starts completing the 1003 at the time. And a 1003 at the time was one page. It was the back. It was just a front and a back. It wasn't seven pages. She's asking me questions about my income. I'm a school teacher. my assets. She's running my credit. You know, she ran my credit report. Keep in mind, in 1980, end of the, uh, the end of the 70s, early 80s, uh, the economy in the United States was highly inflationary interest rates on a 30 year fixed mortgage was 21%. Adjustables were paying were 19% and CDs certificates of deposits were paying one, maybe one, maybe 15% as opposed to today. What's the CD paying today? Maybe like, a half or 1%. But, yeah. Like point, but that's, but it was highly half. inflationary. In fact, New York city was going bankrupt under wow. male, Lin, uh, John Lindsay and Abe Koch. We were in bad shape. Uh, and, uh, uh, nationally and locally. But I went to refinance my house and I see what she's doing. And I asked her if this was a commission generated position. She said, yes, she gets a commission. And um, I said, I asked her if she can introduce me to her boss, which he did. So I came back a week later. I sat down with the sales manager at the time. And we start talking about what loan origination was all about. And I asked him if he had any training, a training program. Again, I'm into education, right? And he says, no, unfortunately, we only provide training to those employees who work full time. And Jimmy, I think at that moment, I made up my mind that if I was ever in a position of leadership, I would provide training to anyone who wants to pursue the mortgage origination business. And I didn't even know the first thing about mortgaging. I just felt it was kind of strange that a sales leader was not willing to provide training to someone newly who's getting into the business for the first time.
0: You know what I gotta say though, Stephen? to this day, it's the same way. I mean, to this day, it's the same way. The majority of mortgage companies do it offer training. My training was here's the phone in the corner, go make calls to lending tree leads, and maybe you can, oh, you have somebody on the line, we'll figure it out. It's ba- like basically, that's that's just, it's a sad truth about our industry, and it should be something that's changed. Yeah, but- well,
1: that, that's not here. I mean, I developed a whole syllabus for, for new loan officers who want to enter the business, whether they want to do a part time and full time. And in fact, I encourage them to keep their full time job. You know, until they can build their business. And that's, right. what, I, that's what I espouse here that I want you to... Tr- we have, we're have structured where you can build a business within a business at no cost. Anyway, getting past that. So he didn't provide any training. So I asked him for something to read. So he gives me at that time, keep in mind, there was no internet. There's no CD-ROMs. Mm-hmm. Anything you learn, you learn from textbooks. So he gives me a copy of the Fannie Mae... And the Freddie Mac seller servicer guides, which were about four inches thick. I can't. I mean, that's incredible. So he said, he said, go ahead and read these, and if you're still interested, come back. So I read, I took them, I came back, I sat down with them, and I said, you know, I think I, I think I have a, an interest in this business. Can you explain to me again what it what it involves? And he says, well, you try to develop relationships with anyone within your circle of influence who you think could give you. A referral, either to purchase a home, a purchase money mortgage, or a refinance mortgage. And he went through some typical examples, realtors, attorneys, financial planners, accountants, and so on. I said, okay, and when they refer a client to you, you'll sit down and you'll begin the pre-qualification process, which includes filling in the 1003 and taking some documentation. He said, you bring it back to me. I give it to my processor and my underwriter, and if the loan closes... You'll make 12 and a half basis points. (laughs) And the average loan size then was about 100,000. Purchase price in New York on Long Island was about 150 to 175. So he says to me, You're going to make 12 and a half basis points on every loan. So now I have a question for you. So he says to me, Stephen, You're going to make 12 and a half basis points. What do you think I asked him?
0: I guess, like, I I don't know, how many loans can I do? Like, I mean, like, how do I get to, how do I make a ton of money with it? Or is 12 and a half a lot? I don't know. What would you even ask? I'm I'm doing the math. That's that's not that great.
1: What'd you ask? You said you're going to make 12 and a half basis points. So I said, that sounds good, except for one thing. What is a basis point? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Dude, I had no idea. Oh, yeah, I guess you're, I... Here I am teaching (laughs) algebra... It's our laboratory. I'm teaching advanced calculus. I'm con- I'm teaching consumer math. And I never heard the term basis point. <laughs> so he said, You're going to make 12 and a half basis points. So he went through the quick math. And as you know, 12 and a half basis points is one eighth of 1%, 0. 0.125. On a $100,000 loan, it would be $125. So I said to myself, Self, if I can close one loan in one $100,000 loan in a month, I'm going to make $125. If I can close two loans, I'm going to make 250, four loans, 500. If I can close eight loans in one month, I'm going to make a thousand dollars. If I can do that every month, I'm going to make about 12 to $15,000 for the year. I'm only making about 15 or 16 as a school teacher. So I decided to give up all my part-time jobs. And I started creating some activity just by visiting realtors, attorneys, financial planners, accountants, CPAs, and, uh, insurance agents, anyone who I thought was in a position, simply boots to the street, referral-based business. And my schedule would be, I would be in homeroom, so to speak, from 6.30 to 2.30. Then I would leave school and I would go to those referral partners I just mentioned, possible referral sources within my, the geographic area of, of, of where I was teaching. And I would just knock on doors and start creating some referral activity. What would you say?
0: What would you say? So, like, okay, hey, here I am. I'm Stephen A. Milner. I'm just got started. I-
1: yeah, I just basically said, you know, I'm, I'm a new, I'm a new originator, you know, and I'm here to, to ins- to ensure that I'm going to pre-qualify, the borrower as best I can to ensure that the loan closes on time.
0: Simple. That.
1: It was a simple pitch, which I've since changed dramatically, but. Yeah. Uh, and I started to create some referral activity. However, because the loan because they did not receive any training, Jimmy, my first 24 loans that I submitted never closed. Oh my goodness. I made $0, not $1. And I thought my wife then was going to stick a fork in each eye. (laughs) How- <laughs> I had given up all my part-time jobs <laughs> and I wasn't making any money at this mortgage thing. How long did it take you to submit 24? About six months.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's fairly, I mean, I think that that's fairly good
1: numbers actually. Yeah. You know,
0: I, about I mean, the like, closing ratio sucks, but the, yeah, submitting- <laughs> like,
1: you know, like up until 1981, cause I saw it in like end of 80. Yeah. Probably six or seven months. That's a good question. But you know, I was getting frustrated, but I've always believed in persistence overcomes resistance. And I went to another mortgage company in Queens, which was 50 miles from where I lived. And um, I started to write some business get, and I received some more mentoring and education. And I started to, uh, to make some money. And I started to close some loans, three loans a month, six loans a month, eight loans a month. Now, I must back up a little bit as i said in 1980 the the a 30-year fixed mortgage was 21 percent what people know many people in the business do not realize is that single digits on the 30-year mortgage did not hit the marketplace until 1992. so for the entire decade 1980 and uh 1991 and 1992 mortgages were at double digits 12 13 14 15 16. i'll never forget in 1992 later on when we got to 9.99%. It was like a party in the streets because we had single digits. Anyway, I started to close some loans and all purchase money, very little refi. And again, the average loan size started to increase on Long Island by 1986. I was closing 30 loans a month myself with no loan officer assistant, just myself working around the clock and teaching. And going to school at night. And by 1986, I was closing 30 loans a month. And I had just gotten my doctorate P- and PhD in mathematics.
0: So w- stay here for just a second. Um, what was it like to close a loan back in 1986? So for me, for instance, I yeah. started in 2007. And by the way, Stephen, I'm a freaking senior in this industry being doing this for 15 years. 14 years, years here, dude. What, yeah. And- but, but you're talking about the 86 and I guess here, what was it like to close a loan 10 like here to do 10 a month I think is a great amount to do. yeah so I think okay. a lot of people get, get to that point. But to do yeah. more than that and with no loan officer assistant, I mean, is this just as simple as you collect all their docs, you review it yourself? are you are you self underwriting it? What is the actual That's process? basically it. did yeah I, and, I and, mean. and you have signature authority and in a sense, you approve the loan.
1: No, I just originated the loans. Did a good job. I became became a student of the business. And that's what I teach today is that if you're going to build a business within a business, then you have to become a student of the business. I still profess that. And there's ways to do that. And we have many ways in which we help our employees to learn the business. It's not just a matter of filling in the, the ERLA. There's a lot more to it. But... So I would take the 1003 at the time, I would complete it, I would get all the necessary documentation. And I guess in my own way, I, I, made, I wanted to make sure that loan was, was going to be underwritten properly. To this day, my philosophy is that a loan should be underwritten, should be originated in such a way that it, that it becomes a novella. It tells a story. It must be able to tell a story to a person who was, i.e. an underwriter, who was not sitting at the kitchen table. And that's my philosophy that's how a loan should be originated where it tells a story so that someone a stranger can interpret that story so anyway i was i decided i was at 1986 i was offered an opportunity finally to become a principal because i met the phd requirements but i was also offered an opportunity to open up a mortgage brokerage company with two other gentlemen i decided to pursue the mortgage brokerage opportunity. I gave up teaching. I lost my New York State teacher's retirement because I was not vested. I lost my benefits, I lost everything, but I felt I really wanted to become an entrepreneur. And um, not to be political, but God bless America, where we're living in a country, unlike some other unfortunate people, whether you're talking about Ukraine or people in Europe or whatever the case may be in South America, anywhere in in the world where you don't really have an opportunity like we have in the, in the United States to become an entrepreneur, to build your own business. And I embraced that. And I opened up a mortgage brokerage with two other gentlemen in Bayside, Queens. Um, my two partners worked the boroughs. I worked Long Island. And at that time, when you acted as a mortgage broker, you didn't really even process the loan. You took the 1003, you collected the documents, and then you sent it off to the Generally to a depository, not so much another an IMB investor. You sent wow. it off to a depository like Cream Point or Williamsburg, or Citibank, or um, or or Chase, whoever it was, underwriting loans for mortgage brokers. Wow! And you didn't process anything. They under they uh, they ordered the appraisal. They sent out the disclosures. They ordered the appraisal. They did everything. Um, and at that time, oh, around oh, easy.
0: That sounds so easy. I mean like shoot you just get yeah, you didn't do one, anything fill it all out and throw you're it there yeah, go. you,
1: know, you, you just threw everything into a fax machine yeah you know at the time and we were close that was in 86 by 1987 we were probably closing 125 to 150 loans a month the three of us with um as a company actually because we hired a few more salespeople but We were making more money i was making more money than i ever thought possible quite frankly um and then uh so we had one office in bayside queens and then we opened up a satellite office for me on long island because i was living all the way out in eastern long island and all my business was in nassau and suffolk county and then we opened up a small satellite office but i jimmy wanted to become a a banker they wanted to stay a broker so we, ha- we started to have serious discussions about a difference in philosophy and which way the company should go. Right? 1992, 1993. Finally, in 1993, I said, look, you guys can stay as a mortgage broker. I want to become a banker. So we split up in at the end of 1993, December. And on February 17th, 1994, I founded and opened up U.S. Mortgage as it is today um, as a mortgage broker. Um, and we, so we just celebrated our 28th year, which I'm very proud of.
0: I mean, that's, and that's I've incredible. Not, Congratulations. I had no
1: partners. I'm 100% owner of the company. And we started as a mortgage broker, opened up a small office, uh, on Long Island and we were doing just purchase money. In Nassau and that's on Suffolk County, I started to grow a sales team and my goal was to become a banker. So, and yet, as you know, you had to have a certain net worth and I was, you know, I was saving my, accumulating my assets so I can meet the net worth requirements. And it took me about two years to get approved. And I think I was one of the first mortgage brokers on, in New York state that was approved as a mortgage banker. It's very,
0: why was it, good back in the day because I mean it seems so easy to broker it based on what you're saying. I yeah. mean, what would be the benefit other than the fact that you can just say that
1: you're a banker? Well the benefit has always been to me is that I'm originating the loan, I'm processing, I'm I'm underwriting, I'm closing, I'm funding it, I'm using my funds, so I'm taking the risk, the reward is greater. But I just felt it was a much more uh it was a much easier sell to a consumer than right. I am actually Lending the money. I am the lender. Right. Not to take anything away from mortgage brokers, but I. uh, It's a different business. It's a different business, you know, and and that's what I wanted to do. And I felt that that was the that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to ultimately be a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginny seller servicer at some point. You know, I was thinking ahead anyway. I And to this day, there's many IMBs that are licensed in every state except New York. New York is very challenging to get licensed. War, yeah for sure yeah, so we, I'm, so I got licensed and we started to really start to create some business started to write some business and then at the end of the and this is the following is going to be related to a, a point you were making at the beginning of the at the beginning of the session um, at the end of the 1990s early 2000s is when the subprime product mortgage products hit the marketplace that's because federal government wanted to raise the rate of home ownership from 63 to 73% so the treasury department endorsed the creation of these subprime liar loan products as they were called which became very popular from the late 90s through the early 2000s And as we know, those products eventually resulted in the Great Recession, uh, which ultimately was caused by the housing bubble and so on, as as they call it. Now, my philosophy has always been that a borrower must demonstrate the ability to repay the loan and the willingness to repay the loan. Unfortunately, those products did not require that the borrower demonstrate the ability or the willingness to repay the loan. Right, we all know that it's crazy. I know. And I've always felt, and our mi- and our mission here, which I think is right behind me over here, is that our mission statement here has always been that, ev- that I've always felt that everyone is entitled to a roof over their head. However, and I was the first to say, it in the late '90s, early 2000s, I believe everyone is entitled to a roof over their head, but not everyone is entitled to a mortgage. And I think if the if the Treasury Department had that philosophy in mind, they would not have supported the creation and the securitization, if you will, of the subprime mortgage products. We would not have had the recession. If a borrower cannot demonstrate the ability or the willingness to repay, then maybe they should be re- it should be recommended to them that they rent for a while, save your money, establish establish a um, a secure. Uh, um salary position or self-employed position but that did not occur so i made a i came to the crossroads in my career which i think you were alluding to at the beginning is that i made a major decision not to do any of those loans as a banker now at that time the average loan size let's say it was about three hundred thousand by 2000 the year 2000 so as a banker you made anywhere from six to eight percent on those loans so simple math, $300,000 loan, you made eighteen dollars to $24,000. And at that time, prior to the LOComp requirement, which was established in April of 2011, pursuant to the C- um, CFPB requirements, um, act- actually pursuant to Dodd-Frank, uh, loan officers were paid a percentage of the gross revenue prior to the the yellow comp rules being established in April of 2011. So, so if we, if, it, if a mortgage company did a subprime mo- uh, loan and made $18,000, they would generally give the loan officer 30 or 40 or 50% revenue uh, commission based on a percentage of the revenue, which averaged about 40 to 50%. So a loan officer on $18,000 gross revenue would make, Eight to ten thousand dollars, right? But I stayed away from all that because I just didn't feel that those products. I did feel those products would create a housing bubble, would cause the recession, and I, I made a crucial decision to do those loans only as a broker, and instead of making six, making six to eight percent, I made two percent. So on a three hundred thousand dollar loan, instead of making eighteen thousand, I made. 6,000. The loan officer thusly would only make 3,000 instead of nine or 10,000. And therefore I lost salespeople. Wow. That was a crucial decision.
0: I have to imagine too, that other people in the industry, just in general, other executives, um, principals were probably looking at you like you're nuts. How come you're not collecting the cash?
1: They did. So did my salespeople. They went down the blocks of some of my, some of my competitors, the competitors of which overnight went out of business as the as the um as their repurchases were requested if you will yeah uh, literally overnight over the weekend securitization ran out there was no price for, available for the loans they had to buy back those loans the loans did not perform why because a borrower did not have to demonstrate the ability or the willingness to repay the loan and then in one simple to- it's not complicated yeah. it's it's so easy
0: it, but but hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I think that back in those days, it was everybody was just so money hungry, and it was just so easy. Wow. I mean, you could do ten percent of the work. I, I remember that. I, yeah. I remember one time I would I would mistype I, I mistyped somebody's assets as um, I, I like I missed the comma, and I said that they had a million dollars in the bank, as opposed to like a thousand or ten thousand. Well, when right. you did that, it would pop a special thing in the in an approve eligible where it says, "Hey, congratulations! You don't need to document anything. They have a million dollars." Don't even prove it like it's all good. And it's crazy to think that that was even around in 2007, 2008. You know, I mean, it was still crazy. And even probably even
1: 2009. But um, yeah, but Listen, I've, I've always felt that the needs of the corporation outweigh the needs of Stephen A. Milner. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Right. And that's why I made that decision, because I really felt that I did not want to be a casualty you mentioned on the meter. Remember the meter? I do. That was, that's
0: how, that's when I started. See, when that was on, I was getting into the mortgage industry. Whereas right. people 07, were looking at said, me like, right. I'm nuts.
1: Yeah. Anyway, um, I stayed away from those products. That was a major decision. And that many, many mortgage companies were going out of business. I think in 07, 07, was I came to another crossroads in my professional career. I think in 2007, many people were getting out of the business. And I think in October of 07, as a company, we closed six loans. Wow.
0: That was my and first, had, was my first opportun- month in the business, by the way. What's my, my that? First, that was my first month in the business, by the way.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was really challenging and I wasn't, it was scary. And I had two, uh, two choices. I had a choice to either shut down, start something new or reinvest in the company and become a national lender. I elected to do the latter because I've always been very concerned about my employees. Many of my employees over the last 28 years have been with me 10, 15, 20, 25, 27 years, you know, and my goal as an employer or and very upfront when I meet employees is to tell them that my objective has always been to serve as an employer for life. That's my DNA, that's how I am. And if an employee leaves, I get kind of emotional over it because I really question if if there was anything I or one of my managers could have done differently to, to retain that employee. Anyway, I decided to recapitalize the company. I wrote out a check for $3 million back into the company and uh, then in 2008, the SAFE Act was passed, as you know. Mm-hmm. The SAFE Act was passed, the Secure and Fair Enforcement Act was passed, requiring loan officers to become licensed. At that time, prior to that, they just had to be registered with the state-specific banking department that they were doing business in. And the licensing requirements, as they are today, was to do the following. They had to take 20 hours of federal pre-licensing education. They had to take three to eight hours of state-specific education. Then they had to take the, the, the national, the national, uh, the national exam, and get seventy-five percent. Then they had to take a state-specific test. In two thousand and thirteen, the CFPB, CFPB dropped the requirement for the state test. So now you just have to take the 20 hours. You and the UST. Take, they have to take the state education. And then you have to take the, uh, the national test. The so UST. I decided if I'm if my goal was to become a national lender, if I wanted US mortgage to become a national mortgage banking entity, you had to have a licensed designee who's licensed in the states that you want the corporation to become licensed in. I basically then made a decision to volunteer myself to become that licensed designee, which required that I take the 20 hours, that I take the state-specific education, that I take the national test, and that I take the state-specific test. Now, back then, when you took the state-specific test, you had to go to a testing center in the state so I had to fly to different states to a testing center and take the state test. No, you don't longer. You no longer have to take the state test. Anyway, and I started doing that in two thousand and eight. By two thousand and ten, I became licensed as an MLO in every state, including Washington DC. And to this day, I still maintain fifty one licenses, including DC. I do my own continuing ed starting in June. Because it's about, you have to do it in like 33 states. And it's about eight hours in every state, give or take. And by 2010, my son Scott came on board, which I'll share that story with you in a moment. And then in 2000, and uh, actually he came on board in September of 2010. But in July of 2010, the um, Dodd-Frank Act was passed. And one of the first things they, they required was that by April, of 2011, as I said before, they required that LO comp be, be paid, that compensation to LOs be paid, uh, on a, uh, on, uh, on a fixed amount that it could not be based on terms and conditions of the loan. And so if I throw in, in January of 2011, that same year is when the consumer financial protection bureau was established to enforce, The Dodd Frank Act. So that's what. So as far as my son, if I can digress for a moment on that, he was born in 1978, and then 1996, he was graduate. He graduated high school, and he had worked in the summers with me, you know, doing copy packages and stuff. So he graduated high school, and he said to me, "Dad, you know, there's really no sense for me to go to college. Why don't I just learn the business? You can teach me the business." save all that money and I can join the company. So I said to him, just like this, Jimmy, I said, dude, two things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to go to college and I'm going to pay for it. Number two, you're not going to come to join my company until you can bring something to my company. I said to him, just because we share the same last name does not mean that you're going to come into my company and possibly ruin what I work 18 hours a day for. He was kind of upset. (laughs) And I I explained to him that there's horror stories that you hear all the time about children who enter their parents' company and they ruin the business. And there's been a number of them on Long Island when that occurred. And he embraced what I said. He went to Boston university in the school of management in 1996. He graduated in 2000 and he became a very successful investment banker on wall street, creating equity derivative products. He would create the product, create the market for it, create the price, and he would sell them to registered investment advisors all over the country. RIAs. But during the recession, as the mortgage business was just in upheaval and I was expanding the company, attempting, you know, pursuing becoming a national lender, I would visit with him. We would go out to dinner anyway, but the main focus of our conversations was the business itself. And quite frankly, sometimes in our personal and our business relationships, it's better to talk to people who are not involved. Sometimes they give a better objective opinion about what to do and how to handle certain things. When they're not, you know you know, what I'm saying? When they're not directly involved in the situation. So, and he's very objective. He's got a very high EQ, emotional quotient as it's called. And in 2010, he made a decision to leave a very successful career and he joined the company in 2010, September of 2010, and he became um, my executive vice, vice president, and ultimately became the president of the company. We have a wonderful relationship. I'm very much focused on education and training and mentoring, as I said. He's very much focused on the secondary marketing and accounting and and uh, technology. He's like he's you know he he runs our business intelligence team, our loan our loan. Um, our LOS team and he's very involved in that. So we really complement each other very well. It's a great guy. And um, so anyway, he came on board and we started to just expand our retail uh, footprint throughout the country. Um, we got our Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac approval as a seller servicer. We do a lot of reverse loans, renovation loans, we do non-QM loans, we do the whole thing. And um, as I said, we celebrated our 28th year. But the the thing that I am most proud of, which I must say, is that as a, as a loan officer, as a CEO, I wear my CEO hat all day long, but I also wear a team leader hat. And I, and I still originate myself at least 20 loans a month, every month, all self-source, boots to the street, referral-based business. And I like to talk about, I, you know, I, I, and I'm very proud of that. And the whole advantage of doing that is that it really keeps me in touch with the assembly line, with the manufacturing process. I'm very sensitive to what loan officers are going through, their challenges, their frustrations at the kitchen table. Right. You know, we all have them. But if I'm experiencing them, then they must be experiencing them. Right. And that really helps cure some 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 issues. I think that.
0: Well, I think that, too, I think that as as a leader or manager or executive principal, whatever you want to call it, somebody that oversees people, we have a tendency to rule from our golden arm chair. And, you know, we're we're we have no perspective. We're just dictating hey do it this way because back in 1986 I did it this way well yeah I did it in 1986 but I'm also doing it in 2022 I think it's difficult to respect a manager that's not actually doing it I', I, I, I it, as someone who's just personally experienced that it's just it's difficult to relate to someone that isn't in the arena you know actually fighting for it right agree. And, and I think that that's I think that that's admirable and 20 loans a month what's up what's up
1: What's up, Steven? I mean, I have my (laughs) own team. I have my own support team. Uh, And I create referral activity no matter where I go throughout the country. Um, I'm always asking people for business. U.S. mortgage is strictly retail. We don't do wholesale. We don't do correspondent. Um, And um, one thing I also brag about, for lack of a better description, is the fact that U.S. mortgage is not going anywhere because my son is here. There are many companies, especially in the m a activity that's going on now in the last two, three years and continues to occur. Right. That there are many companies, especially who are where the CEO or the owner is my age, so to speak. They're looking to get out and cash, you know, and cash in their cash in, right. cash in, cash oh. in their chips. But I have no desire to do that, especially with Scott here. And I tell people that I said, Scott's going to carry on the legacy of U.S. mortgage for another 50 years. And, you know, some people live to work, some people work to live. Working to live is budgetary in nature. You have to feed your family, which I understand. Living to work is where you develop a passion for what you do, no matter whether you're in the mortgage business or any other business. And I feel that as an employee, you must your goal should be to get to the point where you live to work. And when you get out of the shower every morning even in this remote remote environment where many people may not be taking showers but anyway when you do you should be thinking about developing a passion you must have a passion for what you do every day no matter what it is living working to live is understandable i get it you have to make money you have to feed your family and my and i've always lived to work no matter what i've done especially in the mortgage business my goal is to make u.s mortgage better than the day before no matter how minute that may be. and um, Brother, I love that. I mean, and, and, that's, and that's actually,
0: that's a perfect segue to our, um, our final questions that I ask. And, and look, okay. I, you, we've, we've spent some time here and I, I just, I wanna be super respectful of your time, but there's four questions that I ask everybody, Steven, uh, on, on the show. And I wanna make sure that I get these out. Okay. So first one is this, do you feel like you've ever got a big break?
1: A big break. Um, try to think a big break, you know, that, um, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to define what that is, you
0: know. I, I love, I love the silence that you can't even find one. It's, you know what? I mean, it's just, it's really funny because I know some people have had trouble uh, get, hear hearing what I mean. Like a big break. Like, hey man, I had this huge big break. I asked Barry Habib the same question. He's like, ah, like what? Well, what do you mean? What's what's a big break? <laughs> and and the thing is, is that I'm just, I'm just thinking about scrubbing toilets for eighty cents. You know what I mean? Uh, like, what, what's
1: the big break? I think my big break is when Scott decided to come on board. I think if he had not come on board during the transition period of the industry, dude, many companies were not a business, man. You have to, and you have to trust the people that, and we have an outstanding senior management team that have been with me 15 years on the average, but I was very fortunate to be quite frank that my son, Scott decided to come on board. He didn't have to. He was doing outstanding as an investment banker. All right. But, and I think that was, I would consider that a break. A- Absolutely. No, it's good. Well, we found one. <laughs> well, we did.
0: No, that's great. Okay, cool. All right. So the next question is If you were to do it all over again, Stephen, what would you change?
1: Um, if I were to do it all over again, what would I change? I think, (sighs) wow, I gotta think about that. What would I change? Um, I think I probably would have wanted. We okay, so we got our GSE light approvals in. I think like 2011. I probably would have wanted to get them a little earlier. You know, after I I became a banker in '96, I think '97, I could have pursued it then. But you know, as you sell it off to the GSEs, you're losing revenue. You know, that you hope to retain. That you hope to recoup as you know rates start to go up and you have a higher retention factor you know uh but i like i embrace selling loans to the gses you know and servicing loans but i probably would have wanted to make maybe maybe do it a little sooner i
0: i mean that's that's fair i love it um become a seller servicer
1: or a little earlier than i was we got it in i think it was 2011 and 2012. Well, it
0: was also harder then, too,
1: because a oh, lot yeah. more
0: people were going into it. It was the same thing with like Ginny Mae or FHA, full Eagle approval, for instance. Like Yeah, that Mac we got o- right a- away. Yeah. D- like, that we got no. right away, but the, not the JSEs. But, um, okay, perfect. So, next question. Was there ever a time, Stephen, you felt like giving up?
1: That what? That you felt like giving up. No. I've always, as I said, I always believed in persistence overcomes resistance. There was a time, as I mentioned earlier, in two thousand seven, I think in October, we did six loans in the month of October, and you know, and i I still felt then that this was a great business. I just have to change my business model, and I had to create a new playbook, so to speak, which required that we become licensed and we become a and we and we embrace the 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 objective collectively as a, nat- uh, to become a national lender. And that's what we have become.
0: I love it. Basically, no. And matter of fact, at the time, when I started to feel like it, I dug in more, I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah.
1: It's a good question though.
0: All right. So final question to set it up. So there's a young Steven out there. Uh, maybe they've never been to Disneyland. Uh, maybe they grew up with a carpenter and a, a civil service employee, mother and father maybe they're you know driving a uh, nineteen fifty six rambler around a <laughs> smart guy um, you know maybe they're transitioning to uh starting a family and mom's staying at home they're going from thirty thousand dollars to fifteen thousand maybe they're struggling with uh, multi level marketing um Maybe they're just getting started and making their 12 and a half basis points. Maybe they're submitting 24 loans and none of them close. What advice would you give to someone looking to get it done?
1: To get into the business? To get it done, just in general. My advice, which I go through all the time, is simply you have to become a student of the business. And even here... I, I, I meet people like that all week because that's part of what I like doing. I love taking, I really embrace those kinds of situations that you're explaining, that you're describing. And I'm pretty good at the business in terms of creating a business within a business. And I'm a good mentor with that, I, like, I must say. And I have, I've developed what I call the Five Milner Commandments of Loan Origination. A loan officer must learn to do the following and become a student of the following. They must know how to sell, how to qualify, how to take an application, how to follow up with their pipeline, and how to market themselves. Again, sell, qualify. Take an application, pipeline follow-up, and market themselves. And they must become a student of each one of those. And I spend a great deal of time, effort, and energy with people that you just described, teaching those five Milner commandments, as I call it. And I have a syllabus on each one of them, to be quite frank. And, um, and I feel that if someone is committed, I can make... I I can help them become very successful. I just want to add one little point. I love it. Go ahead. In 1980, I sat down with that manager who said there was no training. He was telling me about the business. I get in my car. I'm going home. And the following occurred to me. That a salesperson, no matter what they are selling, has to create three needs with their consumer. They have to firstly create a need for the consumer to feel confident that the salesperson they are dealing with can deliver the product or service that they're looking for. The second need that the consumer, that you have to create in the consumer, is the need for the consumer to feel confident in the company that the salesperson works for, to the extent that they're going to deliver the product or service, right? You're a consumer. Right. Absolutely. The third need you have to create with the consumer is the need for the consumer to use the product or service. So it's the need. You have to create a need for the consumer to feel confident in the the salesperson, him, him or herself. You have to create the need in the consumer to feel confident at the company they work for. Is going to deliver the product or service and then you have to create the need for the for the product or service directly you're a consumer right so when right. you're dealing with a consumer a, a salesperson you want to have confidence that that salesperson is going to deliver what you want and that the co- second needs that you want to feel confident that the company that that salesperson works for is going to provide the manufacture the product or service and then you have to really create the need for the You have to feel confident that that salesperson has to create the need for the product you want. I'm driving home. And I realized right out of the gate, even though I couldn't spell mortgage. That 33 percent of my job was done already. Because I did not have to create the need for the product or the service. I just have to create a need to work on my sales skills related to creating the need for Stephen A. Milner. And the mortgage company i was working for at the time i'm sure you can relate to that because consumers going to contract to buy a house unless they're buying it in cash there's a mortgage contingency they need a mortgage they're either going to come to me or they're going to go down the block right same with a refinance whether they're doing a rating term or cash out whatever the case may be the need for the product is already established and here i am driving home to my home Driving home that night after my meeting, and I said, "Wow, I just have to work on myself, and the, I have to be, feel confident that the company is going to deliver this, be able to deliver this, the the uh, the service and, and the the product, and this actually the product." But I didn't have to create the need for the product; the need is there already. So that's. What I mean, I it's, it's, it's we sell money.
0: It. We sell money. You know, I mean, money, the,
1: the need is there. You need it, yeah right for sure well so I always try to stress that to people that I speak to you know and and
0: in, in here I guess to put a to put a nice bow on it I would I, I would yeah. I, w- I would close with this is persistence overcomes resistance
1: well, Steve, always in life Steve
0: well, all right. I want to uh, thank our audience for joining us today. I especially want to thank Stephen A. Milner for coming on the show. And uh, Stephen, if anybody wanted to reach out to you to connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do so? My email and my, um,
1: you know, my cell phone. I'll give you both.
0: Go, spin them out. We're going to put them in the podcast description.
1: All right. All lowercase on my email. Stephen with a V. Dot A. Dot Milner. That's Amazon Mary I L N E R, M I L N E R at U S Mortgage, all one word, lowercase dot com. No dots in U S. Stephen Dot A Dot Milner at U S Mortgage dot com. My cell number is five one six three three zero five seven five eight five one six three three zero 5758. Five, I also have, uh, you can call me on my office line, which is 631 750 0500. 631 750
0: 0500. Love it, brother. Uh, well, again, I want to thank you for coming on. And uh, hey, uh, to our audience out there, you know, if you've uh, taken some value from today, and uh, you want to support the show, you know, open up your iPhone and tap that five-star button, write us a review, uh, tell a friend, hit that subscribe button. All those things make a huge difference in helping us reach more people. Once again, I'm Jimmy Ryan. This has been the Get It Done Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you very
1: much, Jimmy.